If you're able to, let's stand together and read from God's Word. Matthew 21, I'm going to read the first 17 verses. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you. Humble and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought, they brought the donkey and the colt and put, put on them their cloaks and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is risen, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read? Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. Let's pray. Lord, please bless this passage this morning as we unpack it and consider it. You would speak to us through your Spirit. You would guide our thoughts, that you would teach us, instruct us, correct us, encourage us with it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So today is Palm Sunday. It's the beginning of Passion Week or Holy Week. Um, I, I look back in your archives a little bit because I'm aware that, that within our tradition, Reformed uh, tradition, there's a, a bit of a split in how we view these different holidays. Should we observe them? Uh, should we take note of them or not? Should we just kind of plow through whatever's next in Scripture? Um, there, the reasoning behind not is usually along the lines of we should not celebrate, especially we should not uh, enforced celebration or anything not explicitly commanded in Scripture. Um, something to that, there's also, I suspect, a reaction to the traditions of the Roman Catholic Church with all of its holidays and days devoted to the saints and whatnot. And there's some reason to that. We should be careful that our worship is biblical. I think that's, that's respectable. And we should also take care not to make something that the Scriptures do not command into some sort of law. And yet these seasons, these, these holy days, are still important. They still have value. Christianity is a historic religion. It is based on actual people and events. There, there's something strange about not acknowledging that 
because it almost has a sense of not just minimizing the historicity of what we believe, but also transforming Christianity into more of a set of principles than actual story that's been unfolding. But, but also, I, mean, I wonder if this is something more of an American thing. Um, history and identity go together. I mean, let me tell you what I mean. I, I don't know if you remember, it was about, what, 10 years ago now, William and Kate were married, the, the prince and princess, princess of are they Edinburgh. I forget which one they are. You know, it shows you how tied I am to this. I'm not that much of an Anglophile. <clears throat> um, but, but what was fascinating about that wedding was seeing the pictures of all England turned out for this wedding. Now, everybody loves weddings, but when you're watching what's happening here, what they were not just saying is, we're happy for William and Kate, but this is England. This is our future king. This is our family. From the outside, we have our obvious cynicisms towards monarchs and, and so forth. And even with England, they're not, they're not uh, free from that sort of thing. They're, they're figureheads. They're not real authorities. And if there's something about the tradition of the kings that British people find their identity in, and it unifies them. This is our history. You see it in their cathedrals. You see it in their museums. The, that history is part of us. And part of the challenge for us as Americans, we just don't have much to draw on. Our, our, our grasp of history is, is fairly thin, and, and we tend towards what's practical or useful right, rather than the depths of those, that, that history there. I think that's important for us. We, we, should, we should dive into this history. I, I dare say as well, there's a lot here that I don't think we pick up when we just talk about it. Palm Sunday is about palm branches, Right? That's it. That, that, that is, that's hardly skimming the surface. There is a drama to Holy Week that is fascinating to read. Jesus is doing things that, that, are, that are weighty and loaded that, again, for us, we lack some of the perspective because we aren't first century Jews. There are some things here that are very pointed that I think sometimes we miss if we don't spend time reading through it. And it's, just, it's just wonderful to try to, to not just see that, but also understand the impact of what he's doing at every single moment. Um, I, I noticed this, just, just the difference between reading a passage in my mind and reading it out loud. You miss the drama. When we don't spend time in these stories, we miss some of the drama of what's going on. Why was it when Jesus rolled open the scroll and read from Isaiah 61, people wanted to make him king? There's a lot more happening there than what he simply read. There's a moment in time, that's weighty. There's, what he's, there's the background of all he's done, done up to that point that's weighty. It'd be like if someone stood up and said four score and seven years ago, for us as Americans, we're thinking time and place and circumstances. There's time and place and circumstances in Scripture that often we miss because we don't, we don't have the ears to hear. We haven't spent time in it. And so, so if you'll allow me to, which is sort of a rhetorical non question because I'm going to do it anyways, but I, I, I want to walk our way through this event. And there's, there's some things to pull out, but this is not as simple. Here are the, the main principles I want you to get out of Palm Sunday. I want you to enjoy and see all that's going on here, or, or, or at least most of what's going on in here in this passage, because it's fantastic. It's, it's amazing. It's, it's exciting, the kinds of things that are going on as Jesus enters into Jerusalem. So let's, let's begin. Context first is important. 
Jesus is, is entering Jerusalem. This is in all the Gospels. John's a little bit different. John puts us much earlier, but, but the flow of the Gospel, Jesus spends most of his time outside of Jerusalem, up in the north around Galilee. So there's, there's something monumental about what he's doing now, just as far as his own ministry. Um, think or consider or be reminded again of the special nature of this city. This is not just the national capital, it's the historic capital. Jerusalem was David's city. Again, just pause back to what I was saying earlier. How many of you here on the West Coast have been to Washington, D.C.? Okay, about half. Most of us will live our whole lives without going to the capital. When you go to the capital, you feel it, don't you? There's something going on there. There's something meaningful here. This is an important place. It's not just, just happens to be the capital. It feels like a capital. This is the, this is the historic capital. This is David's city. This, this is, when I went to England one time on the way to Africa, um, I had to lay over and went into the city a bit, and you see all these blue discs that announce all these different historic places um, all along the way. This is where Winston Churchill spent three years of his life as a college student, like down to the mundane kind of stuff. But you go into Westminster Abbey, and, and you're, you go into the back, and you're walking past the tombs of the kings and queens of England. You're seeing the stone with, you're seeing the throne, the ancient throne with the stone of, of Scotland underneath it. You're seeing this, the grave sites of, of David Livingston and C.S. Lewis and Yeats and all these different poets and authors and, and figures from history, and, and the feeling is so overwhelming to just want to touch it. It's palpable. It's not dates and times. There's something about history that just draws you to want to, I'm, I don't know if that's what sacred means in terms of feeling, but, but meaningful stuff has happened here. Meaningful things have happened here in a way that, you know, for this property, who knows? Some prospectors walked across it, and that's, that's kind of it. But wars weren't fought here, as far as we know. Nothing of, of great historic significance has happened. We're, we're, we're kind of it. <laughs> but, but Jerusalem was the ancient city that David conquered, that David established his kingdom, that the Lord said, I will put my name on this place. This is where I will be present among my people. So it's historically the capital, and it's the spiritual capital of of Israel. This is the center. This is ground zero for everything. Now Jesus is heading into the city. What, what, I mean, depending on how you, how, which gospel you read, the first time, the first meaningful time, or, or the second or third time from when he was a child. He heads into Jerusalem, and it's the time that's also important to take note of here. He makes his entrance on the week of Passover. This is one of the major Jewish holidays in the year. Jerusalem was typically packed. There's estimates that Jerusalem have had somewhere between four or five times the number that normally had. So a city within the old walls, a city that was probably about 25 or 30,000 people, was now over 100,000. Wall-to-wall people. But, but that alone isn't the most important part because it's the event itself, the celebration of the exodus, the remembrance of God delivering his people out of Egypt an annual remembrance, not just what happened, what God did, but looking ahead to, but we still need deliverance. Israel's in the between times. The, the Exodus was an important event, a shaping event for them. 
And yet, here they were celebrating Passover under the larger rule of Rome. They knew that. They felt that. This is the latest in a line of empires that had dominated Israel because they had been unfaithful to the Lord. Rome's presence in Israel was a continual reminder that they had not yet been forgiven by God. That God still held their sins against them. But, as the prophets also promised, one day he was coming again. A servant was going to come. A stone was going to be, not cut by human hands, was going to be established in Israel and would fill the whole earth and would be a kingdom that lasts forever. And you see that, especially in the accounts of Jesus' birth. There's this longing among the people that, that the news of this child born, the circumstances of that birth is, is he the one? Is the time now? We want this to be over. We want all the people of God to be gathered back in from where they've been scattered. We are weary under the unresponsiveness unresponsiveness of God to our sin. But he promised he would come and forgive us again. Is it now? Is the time come? So not just looking back, but looking ahead. And every Passover to this day, celebration of Passover, the traditional celebration of Passover, have a couple elements that, that I think are important to this point. One is the cup of Elijah. The third, the third cup of Elijah is set out. There's four cups in the meal. The third one is set out, and the door is open. Because, as Malachi said, Elijah's coming. And Elijah will come and herald the entry of the Messiah. So we open that door in hope. Is it now? And then the meal at the end concludes with next year in Jerusalem. Next year will be when he comes. It's an annual remembrance of God's deliverance and God's faithfulness to his covenant, but to looking ahead to when he will complete this. We we took our students a few weeks ago on a two-week trip uh, through Portland, down through Oregon to Southern California, where we spent a few days and one of the places along the way that we visited was a synagogue. And it was more of a, 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 they consider themselves reform, but reform for them means uh, more progressive in, in how they hold to teaching the law and the certain tenets of the law and, and their expectations. But even there, there's this hope that the Messiah will come and will make things right. The fact that the world is the way it is is proof that he hasn't come yet. But we have hope. We have hope that he will come. And in the meantime, we are to be the ones who carry that hope into the world and help bring that about. So it's there. It's, it's laden. So, so when Jesus makes his entry, he's coming into this context. That's why we see what happens here when he comes in. But before we get to that, Jesus does something here that's, that's subtle and incredibly significant because he didn't simply walk in instead he set up to enter in riding on a donkey that he had borrowed along the way and just occurred to me this time i was preparing for this he just took the donkey it's like if anyone asks tell them i need it and similarly the guy will be okay with it but but i don't want to say he stole it but he, he he borrowed it without asking so i don't know what you do with that that's not an application that's just an observation 
Um, but it's what Matthew adds next. He did this in fulfillment of Scripture. Now, now fulfillment here, I think we can hear two ways. One is Jesus did it, did it as he was destined to do at a certain point in time. So, so Jesus kind of, in the clockwork of God's plan, Jesus was fulfilling his role. Or Jesus fulfilled it actively in saying, now is the time I'm going to take this trapping on myself. So when I come into the city, people will hear Zechariah. Here's your king. And this crowd that gathers seems to be a crowd that has been following him for a while. So they've heard him. They've followed him. They've seen him. They're already prepped in some way for this moment. And they respond by taking off their cloaks and laying them down in Jesus' path, cutting down the branches, laying them in Jesus' path, and shouting the words from one of the great messianic psalms. Hosanna! Lord, save us! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Those weren't just words grabbed eclectically out of the passage. They are saying, He's here. Here he is. It's time. And the whole city is stirred up or shaken, which makes sense. Here's here's a bustling city, a packed city, and all of a sudden this uproar happens at one of the gates. And it's not just an uproar, not just the noise, but what's being said. The king is here. Which king? We have Herod. Who's this guy? And why this week? What is going on? And the city is apparently confused by this. You have this crowd who's excited. They see what's happening, and they're celebrating. And then the larger city is like, who is this? What is going on? What is happening? And the whole city is now activated by this, by this event, by this entry. And Jesus keeps moving. That is the first entry that he makes. But then he makes a second entry. After coming into the city, he goes straight into the temple and straight to the merchants who were selling in the courtyard and chased them out. Now, what's going on here? On the one hand, one could argue that they were providing a necessary service. These these. They were selling animals to be sacrificed. That would save you a lot of, I mean, if they thought this way, that would save you time, save you convenience of having to bring your own on whatever journey you were on. So that would make an easy market for that. And the money changers were there to help change the different currencies into the temple money that would be acceptable for alms and such like that. So you could make an argument that what they were doing there was actually valuable and important. And yet, and yet, Jesus chases them out. Not, not as a lesson against economics, but, but in a way that is very striking. Because he drives them out saying this, my house shall be called a house of prayer. It, that's not just saying, hey guys, remember what the temple is about? It's not here to change money, you can do that outside. This is my house. I'm bringing this back to what it was meant to be for me. And then as after he, ch- he chases them out, people, the blind and the lame, come to him and he heals them. He brings that back to normal. But that my house, he's not just quoting words. He's saying in a way that suggests that he is, 
God. He comes into the city acting as though he's king, as though I'm back. This is my city. This is my people. This is my nation. And into the temple, this is my house. It's at this point that the the Pharisees and the chief priests and such arrive on the scene. They were already opposed to Jesus. Um, they were already, he was already going after them, but this, at this point, had to be a bridge too far for them. This is the last straw. Who does this guy think he is? We've challenged him along the way. Now he's coming into our own territory and acting like he owns the place. Who is he? Who does he think he is? And we see Jesus responding with Scripture in a way... There's some times where Jesus answers in this way, it sounds a bit more sassy than anything. But this seems more serious, doesn't it? Uh, Let me see, sorry. Do you hear, they see what he's doing, they hear the children crying out to him, Hosanna to the son of David, and they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And he said, yes. Have you never read? Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you've prepared praise. This is not just a justification of what's being done. He's saying, this is God's work, and you don't see it. You are blind to this. You should know better. But I'm not leaving. I'm saying what I'm saying. I'm doing what I'm doing. What are you going to do with me? I want, I want to pause for a second and say something about this at this point because I think it's important to... There's, there's something important about the Pharisees that we need to consider. In, in at least the way that I was taught about the Pharisees and how they related to Jesus, they, they typically fit into the role of the bad guys, which there's, there's some warrant to that, and there was certainly some bad eggs in the religious leadership. Um, however, however, it's more, we should take them more seriously because there are implications for this. These were people that had devoted their lives to the teaching and preparing of Israel for the return of the Messiah. They, they were not simply legalists in the way that we use the term. They were looking at the history of Israel and what the pro- God had said for, through his prophets and understood that in order for us to be a holy people again, we need to reverse what we had done before to get into this place, which means we had failed to keep God's law, we had failed to keep holy, we had been an adulterous people, and so the path back to righteousness is to get back to the law and to keep it faithfully and exactly Because we want God to come for us. We want to be a holy people. We want to be in the righteous remnant here. We want Israel to be saved. So so they weren't roaming around looking to make a bad time for everybody. They They were frantically, if I can use that word, trying to get Israel on track. And Jesus comes into the middle of that and just seems to undermine them in every way. He didn't do what they were doing. They wanted the right things. They opposed Jesus for the right reasons, out of zeal for God, because God had told them, there's going to be false teachers that come along and that will draw the people away. And if Jesus starts 
in their view, attacking Moses and the law and the temple, which he did at different points. What do we do with this guy? How can the Messiah do this? He must be a false prophet. We must do something about him. And in their zeal for the Lord, it did not recognize the one they had been waiting for. We'll come back to that thought later. But that's a fascinating thing about this story, is that the ones who put Jesus to death were the ones who arguably in Israel were the most prepared for the Messiah to come. Up to this point, Jesus has been fairly, uh, coy is not exact what I'm looking for, but in the course of his history, he's been fairly guarded and careful about how he talked about himself with regards to being the Messiah. On Palm Sunday, that was all stripped away. Palm Sunday is a day that Jesus declared himself as the Messiah to his people. Here I am. Who do you say that I am? So, takeaways from this that I see. First of all, it is the relationship between Palm Sunday and the sovereignty of God. It's important here to see that not only did the crucifixion have to happen, we believe that, we understand that, but it had to happen at this time and in this way. Jesus is very aware of time, not in the way that we're thinking of, but in the way that God's unfolding plan, um, everything was moving according to God's plan, but, but more significantly here, the timing was connected to visual, palpable aspects of Israel's history so that who he was and what he was doing would be unmissable to those who could see it. Why was he coming on Passover? Why was he doing this now? What's the centerpiece of Passover? Spotless lamb slain, blood applied to the doorframe of the house so that they would be spared from the angel of destruction. Here I am. I mean, here you can hear possibly the echo of Abraham and Isaac on the mountain, Abraham about to offer Isaac as a sacrifice. What are you doing? God will provide a lamb. And he does. The timing is exquisite. There is a poetic aspect to what Jesus is doing that's just perfect when you see it. Passover, Jesus is killed. His blood is shed. And that is where we find our hope of God's forgiveness. We find our hope in the face of the angel of destruction. God's wrath is turned away. Because this man, this Jesus of Nazareth, this prophet of God, is the Passover lamb. Our Passover lamb. Which is all the more incredible, considering most of us here, I'm guessing, aren't Jewish. We're the after effect of what he accomplished through Israel, which makes it all the more remarkable still. The other, another, another question here, or another, another thought here. 
Um, what does this whole week mean for us? This, I think, is what we miss. Coming back to what I said at the very beginning of my introduction, is why this week is so important. We, we like to get to Good Friday quickly and even quicker to Resurrection Sunday. And we don't learn from our history and from, our, from the churches that the church has gone before us the importance of this entire week, the importance of Jesus' suffering for our sake. Christ suffered for us. That's the measure of our sin and guilt. As we walk through this week, it's an uncomfortable week, isn't it? It's an uncomfortable week to see Jesus betrayed. It's an uncomfortable week to see his disciples flake out on him. And one of his closest friends betrays him, turns him over. The the supposedly godly men of Israel are the ones who tried to manipulate Pontius Pilate into getting him killed in their wrath, in their hatred of him. And all of that reflects on us. We are not people worthy to be saved. This is an embarrassing week for humanity. Yet Christ suffered for us. Christ endured that for us. It's the measure of our sin. It's the measure of our guilt. It's the measure of his love, which is greater than both of those. That he endured that. Christ's suffering is valuable for us as we head towards Good Friday and consider what he did. But secondly, it's also the endurance of suffering that Christ intended for us to see as an example to follow. That's hard because, again, not something I'm good at, not something I think we generally, particularly in the American church, are good at. Our persecutions are pretty petty, aren't they? Suffering is not a word we should use easily. Jesus endured suffering, unjust suffering, spiteful suffering, cruel suffering, endured it all and did what? Did not open his mouth, did not curse or accused, did not lash out, did not fight back, not because he was powerless. He could have at any time brought in the angels of heaven to wipe out his enemies at any time. And he endured suffering, endured the cross, prayed for his enemies while dying, while they taunted him for the joy set before him. We have so much to learn from this week. The last, last point to consider here is, is the incredible contrast between God's ways and our ways. I, I've been really helped. Uh, Carl Truman wrote a, a biography of Martin Luther a few years ago that was really helpful to me because he, he summarized one of, one of Luther's uh, great and important distinctions between the theology of glory and the theology of the cross. Theology of the glory is the way that we tend to think about God. When we think of God, when the Bible speaks of God as Father, we begin with our Father. When we we hear about these different attributes of God, His love, His mercy, His grace, and all that stuff, we begin with us and our experience and work our way up and just kind of expand out, multiply times infinity or whatever. That's 
normal and that's natural and it's really the basis of every single religion in the world. Jesus comes in this week as a man riding a donkey, not a war horse, to declare his kingship. And ends the week dying on a cross. How is that possibly a useful example of any kind of God? How can, how can the great God, the great Messiah, die in weakness and humility at the end of the week? Why doesn't he fight? Because God's ways are not our ways. The, wisdom, the, the foolishness of God is greater than the wisdom of man. We cannot conceive of how God can show his strength while dying on the cross, but that's exactly what's happening. We cannot see Christ's greatest victory takes place on the cross as he's taking his last breaths. We cannot see Satan defeated on the cross when it seems that Satan's defeating him. But that's what's happening. God uses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He uses the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He is different. And that that difference, I think, is meant to tell us to stop talking and start listening. He's not the God of our imagination. He's not the God of our political party or our social values. He is God and means to shape us instead. But until we realize how ridiculous that presentation of God is in the Scriptures even though we're used to it, how unlike us. I don't know if we're prepared to listen. How much I've heard these days of how the church needs to be strong against the world and Christ died on the cross. How much we need to fight when Jesus didn't open his mouth. We want to be honored and respected when Jesus came as a man that was unexemplary in most ways, except for we had to say and things that he did for those who were needy and hurting and sick. God is different than us. He is not like us. He is not like anything in this world. And the need for us is to, to keep coming back to that theology of the cross and see God reveal himself and hear God reveal himself and silence our desires to remake him in our image. The God we want cannot save us. The God we imagine is powerless. The God who sent his son to die on a cross for us and raised him from the dead is able to do all those things. Who is he? Who is this? Let's close in prayer. Lord, may we confess with all sincerity, we we scarcely know you. Yes, you've revealed yourself in your word. You have spoken through your word. We we catch glimpses of it in the person of Jesus. But our imaginations run far ahead of us. 
May, may we this week slow down, walk through this week, see, see and hear all that takes place as we work our way this, through this week to Friday. May, may we wonder at the blindness of those who are most ready to receive him. May we, may we be astonished at the cruelty of humanity towards their creator. May we feel with the disciples the, the utter gut punch at seeing Jesus dead on the cross, though he had told them numerous times that he would rise again, come away from the cross believing it was the end. It was over. It was time to go home. So that when Sunday does come, we'd be astonished. We'd be amazed. We'd be terrified at the fact of the empty tomb. That, that's not just good news. That, that changes everything. That that tomb is empty. That means that the suffering for our sake was accepted. That your, Paul, that your forgiveness is bought that we are free. And like Christ, we'll be raised again ourselves. Everything changes. Lord, Lord guide, guide our thoughts and our, our conversations this week as we meditate on this. Lord, we praise you. We, it's so, such a, a trite thing to say that we are sinful people. Our sin is beyond what we can imagine. Our guilt is immense. And yet you paid for that with your life. And we praise you. We, we don't know what else to say. But thank you. All glory to you. And we want to follow you. So Lord, please, please help us. Help us to be faithful. Help us to take take your word into us to, to live as your people with, with that kind of awe, with that kind of gratitude and contentment, with that kind of excitement that the early church had. Desire to see you reign over all creation. Make all things new. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.